Right, well, good morning, everybody. Hey, that wasn't half bad. All right, good. It's good to see you here today. Thank you for coming, and uh, glad to have you here as part of our service. If you're visiting with us, we consider you an honored guest. We thank you for being with us and worshiping the Lord today, and that's what we're desiring to do. We're not desiring to entertain. We're not desiring to feel good. We're desiring to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that's what we want to do today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of 1 Thessalonians, if you would. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. If you need a Bible, there's probably a black cover Bible there in the seat in front of you. We'll be on page 874 if that helps you out. So if you need a Bible there, 874. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, number 5. I do want to take a moment to thank everybody that helped out with our um, Teen Catalyst retreat. We had a, on Friday evening and uh, Saturday. We had a good time with that. I appreciate uh, Brother Will and Brother Micah. And everybody else that jumped in and helped out and did lots of different things, it was good. It was a little weird for me. You know why? I'm kind of used to doing things and running things. So I'm learning to let go and let God use other people, which is a good thing for me. It's good. And so I'm thankful for it. It was nice to be a part of it. And, and uh, just continue to be praying. We're having our, this, uh, our junior retreat for the kids, and, and we're excited about that. And, and all of that is being taken care of because of that loose change offering they do on Sunday nights. They take in money to help them with different things like this, and we're excited about having some time of just pouring Christ in. I tell you, it's never a waste of time to invest in people about who Christ is and what Christ has done. There's never an age too young or an age too old that doesn't need to hear about what Jesus has done for them. And so we'll be looking, uh, looking forward to that retreat uh, coming up this weekend. And then also I want to mention on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock, we have started a series going through the book of Colossians. And going through the book of Colossians, and we're rotating the different ones speaking as we go through preaching. Uh, Brother Will preached last week, and we'll have also myself, and then uh, Brother Micah, and then Brother Jeremy. We're not all going to preach the same night, so you don't have to freak out about that, thinking, man, are they all preaching the whole... No. We just take time in certain passages, and we do a different preacher each time, and going through that book. I love the book of Colossians, talking about the sovereignty and the reign of Almighty God in our lives. It's a great thing. We're going to be in First Thessalonians this morning, and... Uh, we're going to read quite a few verses here. So we're going to read some passages of Scripture, then I'm going to give you a little bit of a background because if you're like me, if I read something, it's great. But if I understand the meaning and the purpose behind it, it really helps. By the way, you ever get a text message from somebody and you have no idea what the tone was behind it? You might think, oh, how are you doing today? Fine. Fine may be, I'm fine. Fine may be, every now and then someone says, how are you? I'm fine. That does not mean I'm fine. You don't know the tone. You don't know the mood. You don't know the purpose and desire, is it? And so we're going to take some time in a moment to do that as we read this letter from Paul to this church at Thessalonica. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. And just stay with me, if you would, as we go down through here. But it says in verse number 1 of 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh, as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Verse 6. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, 
but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. What a wonderful verse. Verse 11, it says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and your soul and your body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Father, I pray as we come to you this morning that you might add your blessing, please, Lord, to the reading, the teaching, and the hearing and acceptance of your word. God, you are worthy. Lord, thank you. In Christ alone, we have salvation. In Christ alone, we have strength. In Christ alone, we have joy to live this life and the things that we face. And Lord, I pray you might, over the next few moments, you would just take me, Lord, use me in a way that would be pleasing to you. And Lord, before I ask you to use me, Lord, I pray you would make me usable, cleanse me of my sin and myself. Lord, that I might say what you have for me to say. And Lord, I just pray you might speak through your word. Lord, you are such a great God. You are such a wonderful Savior. And Lord, I pray you would be with us today. Lord, I pray that there would be encouragement of the heart this morning. Lord, for those that are, that are here without you, Lord, there might be saving of the soul. There might be a renewing of the mind. There might be a refocusing on you and your faithfulness, not just today, Lord, and as we're in this room, but in the days to come. May we please you in all that's done. In the most worthy name of, of all names, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. And so you come to the book of 1 Thessalonians. And if you're like me a lot of times, I read passages of Scripture and I get things out of it. But I don't necessarily get everything out of it that I would like to get because I don't understand where it came from and different things. Give you a quick rundown of it. The Apostle Paul, Paul and Silas, actually started this church in Thessalonica. You can read about that over in the book of Acts, chapter number 17. He starts... And they start this church, and God is blessing, and it's growing. And it's not a Roman province. It's aligned with Rome, but it's not a Roman province. But they start this church, and immediately, uh, not, well, not too far along, not immediately, but not too far in the distant future, Paul and Silas have to escape Thessalonica. Because the Romans hear about these Christians that says, there is a king, and that king is Jesus, and it's not Caesar. So they start persecuting and killing these Christians that are there in Thessalonica. So Paul and Silas escape for their lives. And so they're gone, but the church continues to be in persecution. Paul sends Timothy. You probably remember Timothy, Paul, Timothy, in the books of First and Second Timothy. Timothy goes and he reports back to Paul. He says, Paul, I've got to tell you something. These guys are not just uh, sustaining during persecution, but they're growing. They're growing in their faith. They've got questions and different things, but they are growing in the way that they believe. And so when you read it, the first two chapters of Thessalonians are such an encouragement and a praise for their faithfulness to God in spite of 
persecution. And can I say today, God help us in spite of persecution and trials and the things that we face, that we would continue to stay faithful to God. And that's what he was telling them in the first two chapters. Chapter 3 is more of a prayer uh, that they would stay devoted to God and just a concern to stay uh, close to God in what they do. And you get in chapter number 4. Chapter 4, they start to have some questions because they're like, we heard you teach about the day of the Lord, the coming back of Christ. The rapture, if you like to call it like that. The coming day of the Lord. And they had a lot of questions. They didn't know and they didn't understand a lot of things. And he wanted to encourage them to be faithful to the end because the king is coming. By the way, in that Bible day, they believed Jesus was going to come back in their day. And I tell you, if they believed Jesus was going to come back in their day, we're a whole lot closer to the day of the Lord than they were. By the way, you are one week closer to the day of the Lord than you were last week. We'll get into it in a moment, but how much more prepared are you for the day that you meet God this week than you were last week? You say, I was busy. There's going, to be a time in, there's going to be a time and place where everything that really matters will show themselves worthy, that will show themselves valuable. And so you come to chapter number 5. In chapter number 5, he's trying to answer some questions for them about the day of the Lord, trying to help them, encourage them as they're suffering and dealing with things in their life. You may be here today and you say, Phil, I'm not going through physical persecution from an enemy, but I've got trials in my life. I've got things in my life. Hey, I'm getting a little bit in my life weary of well-doing, and I've heard all my life about the day of the Lord, but where is it? The Bible actually says in end, in end times that, you know what, there'll be those that mock you and say, oh, really, where is your Jesus? Where is he at? And so we're going to look at some things concerning this text, and there's three questions about this text that Paul is going to answer. And I know I gave you that real quick history lesson. But anyway, just letting you know a little bit about what this uh, chapter is about. But he gives a little bit of the idea of some questions about the text. The first question is this. How does the reaction of the follower of Christ differ from the reaction of the unbeliever when it comes to the day of the Lord? When he's talking about the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, how does the reaction of the follower of Christ, the believer, how should it differ from someone that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The second question he's going to uh, fulfill here is this. How does the hope of the coming of the Lord affect my current reality? How does the hope of one day Jesus will return or I will see him, how does that affect your current reality? We'll get into that. I ask you this morning as we start. How is the idea that one day you'll stand before Jesus and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? How does the hope of that day change the way that you are living today and the way that you're living your life today? And the third question that we'll see is this. How will the faithfulness of God be revealed? How will the faithfulness of God be revealed? In everything they're going through, how will God show himself faithful? So as we look at this, and he's kind of answering some questions, they had questions that they had. And one of the big questions they had was, what about those, they're like, Paul, what about those people that were saved, they had a relationship with Christ, but they've already died. What happens to them at the day of the Lord? What happens with that? Do, do they just miss out on this rapture? Do they miss out on this return of the Lord? Do they miss out on being with him? And Paul answers those questions at the end of chapter 4. If you've probably attended a funeral, especially a Christian funeral, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18 are the verses that you probably go to. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them that are asleep or those that are dead, that you sorrow not as others which have no hope. Hey, 1 Thessalonians is all about Holiness and future hope. Live holy in the day and age you live in 
but that blessed hope that's going to happen one day. And he goes on to talk about, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangels and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. He even goes on to say, And us that are alive shall be caught up together to live with the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And he finishes chapter 4 with this. Comfort one another with these words. He said, this is something you should rejoice about. The idea of the coming of the Lord should make you rejoice as a believer. And if you don't rejoice at the idea of the coming of the Lord, something's not right. Either in your life you don't genuinely have a relationship as Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you're not living what God's called us to a holy life. We're not trying to be holy as I am holy, saith the Lord. And by the way, there's not a person in this room or ever will walk in this room that is perfect. Every single person. You're looking at a very imperfect person. And you know what? But I'm still called to be holy. I'm still called to live a holy life. And so we see these questions, and he's telling them, I know you're facing difficult things. And, and they even got to the point where they were wondering, did we miss the return of the Lord? We're facing such wrath. We're facing such oppression that we've listened to your teaching, Paul, and you said after that the Lord returns that God will pour his wrath out on this earth. Did we miss it? Is there something that we've done? And it all boils down to this particular thing. They're saying, have we believed wrongly? Did we miss it? Have we put our hope in the wrong place? We're suffering for our trust in Christ, but we're not seeing any benefits, Paul. We're not seeing any benefits. From it. Have we been foolish? We're going to start looking at these verses here. And we're going to look at the verse number one. And it says this, But of the times and seasons, brethren, he says, Ye have no need... That I write unto you. You say, what do you think he means by that? You have no need that I write unto you. He's trying to comfort them by saying this. He says, everything that you have heard taught, everything that you've heard preached about the word of God and the faithfulness of God and the return of God, it is true and it should be sufficient for what you're facing today. Remember Paul when he said he asked God to remove the thorn in the flesh three times? What was the response of Christ? My grace is sufficient. He didn't say, Paul, I'll take it away. He says, Paul, everything that I've already given you and everything that I will give you and all that I am, it is sufficient means it is enough. Can I tell you what he's telling this church at Thessalonica? I know you're going through a hard time. I know you're struggling. I know you see opposition. I know you don't see a lot of times the benefits because it's not as obvious sometimes of being a child of God, but he's telling them this. Can I tell you that everything that you know in this book and been taught from this book, not from man's philosophy, but from the word of God, he's saying, you know what? is sufficient for what you're facing. Can I tell you today, you may be facing a physical ailment in your life. No one else in this room may know how you're doing it, but can I tell you that through the Word of God and through the love of God and the peace of God, His grace is sufficient. You may be struggling emotionally. You may be struggling mentally. You may be struggling spiritually. Can I tell you the same thing? That God's Word is sufficient. There are people today leaving churches, leaving Christianity. You know why? Because God's Word isn't enough. They're leaving because they don't feel better. They're leaving because they don't like this program or they want this program or want that or want that. Can I tell you that the Word of God being taught true and faithfully is enough? Now, I would encourage you in this. If wherever you go, whether you're at Emmanuel, whether you're visiting, can I tell you that the key to everything that should be done here is to glorify God. And the channel from which we do all of it is through the teaching, preaching, and living out, by the way, of this book. That's what it's for. Our soccer program, if it doesn't uh, live the Word of God, if we don't live our lives out there to be a light to shine, we need to shut it down. 
But let me tell you something. A lot of people feel like, well, you've got to have programs or you've got to have good Bible teaching. You can have both. Just because a church has good Bible teaching doesn't mean they don't need to reach out to the community and find ways to reach out and tell them of the love of God, not compromising standards and going into sin, but to tell them who the love of God is and for them just to see a little bit of a difference in someone that calls himself a Christian. But it also doesn't mean that we've got to be so program-oriented and it's so much about entertainment that we leave behind the thing that truly satisfies. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Any man that tastes of me or takes of me, they'll never hunger again. He tells the woman of the well, I am, I, am the what? I am the water. And whoever drinks of me and drinks of this well shall never thirst again. And so we see him trying to encourage them. He says, I don't have any need to write into you something new. He says, you have this. You say, Phil, I'm facing a new problem in my life. Go back to the same consistent God and book that you have. You say, well, Brother Phil, I, I really clung to the Bible in this period of my life, but this right here is new. I wasn't prepared for it. He says Jesus Christ is what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. And God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God knows everything that has happened and ever will happen in my life. And he's enough. He's enough. Even when I don't see it, especially when I don't feel it. And uh, he's trying to tell them this, and I want to tell you the same thing. I can't explain to you when the coming of the Lord will be. But I can tell you with confidence there is going to be a coming of the Lord. I can't tell you when. By the way, anyone that says they can tell you when, you might want to stray away from them just a hair. Okay? I cannot explain to you when the coming of the Lord will be, but I tell you, you must have confidence that the day of the Lord is coming. And he has such confidence. In verse number 2, he says this, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. He is so confident that the day of the Lord will come, even though he didn't know when, he said it's going to be like a thief coming in the night. How many of you ever, you don't have to raise your hand, ever had been vandalized by something? Someone broke in, stole something? Took something. I know we live in Milledgeville. Nobody messes with everything. Everybody loves everybody's stuff. Right? The person robbing you or taking from you, they don't give you a phone call ahead of time. Hey, I just want to make sure you're not going to be at home at 7, right? Because I'm going to need you going from 7 to at least 7.45 because I'm not going to be able to get that TV out of your house by myself. I'm going to call some friends, okay? I'm going to make sure I can steal, you know, everything. They're not going to let you know. It's like the thief that comes in the night. It's when it's going to be. It's going to be, I remember uh, when Rachel and I were first married the first couple months, I still have that 97 Nissan pickup truck you see me ride around in sometimes. And I had in that in 97. It didn't come with all this nice accessories. I have crank up windows. Some of y'all know what I mean when I say crank up windows. Young people are like, what'd that be? Okay, crank, it's where you had to roll the windows up and down. It also had a stereo with a cassette player. But we were moving up in the world. We got CDs. My problem is you can't put a CD in a tape player. And they came out with these Walkmans. I don't know if you might remember these. Walkman had a cassette on it that had a wire attached to it. You pushed in the cassette. It went in, and the wire was attached to this CD player. You put it in, push it down, and that's how you played it through. Man, I was high-tech whenever I had that. I was awesome. And I remember one night we lived in this apartment for these first few months that we were married, and it wasn't a bad area. It wasn't a great area. There actually was a, like a liquor store right on the other side there. That should have been assigned to me. But anyhow, it's there. And I remember for some reason I got my very first checkbook. Some of y'all remember that first time you got a checkbook? Again, I'm losing some of the younger. What was the checkbook? You know, I got a checkbook. And I put it in the glove box. 
And that night I came out to my truck and I saw my little sliding glass window had been broken out. And I looked in my glove box, my checks were gone. And somebody stole my Walkman with the cord attached to the cassette. So I went and called the bank. I called my insurance. The insurance said, what are you missing? I said, I'm missing my Walkman is what I'm missing. <laughs> somebody had taken my checkbook and actually went to the liquor store right there and like wrote a check to buy alcohol. And they're like, well, we're kind of wondering because we kind of watch your, uh, your kind of, you don't normally buy a lot of this stuff. And you normally don't print your name on the check either. I was like, how did y'all cash a check that's printed? But anyhow, and then the guy, whoever it was, guy, girl, whoever, went to Red Lobster that night, had a great time and spent about $80 and wrote Philip Rogers and didn't actually sign a name. And I'm sitting there going, man, I felt very, very, very violent. I was very unprepared for that. And you know what he's telling them here? You don't have to feel that way as a believer. The return of Christ doesn't have to catch you off guard. But those that don't know Christ, it will. It says he'll return as a thief in the night. But you can have confidence. That's just says you can have confidence in verse 2. Knowing perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And he follows up here with the idea of this. You don't know when the day is coming, but there's a way to be prepared for it. Can I tell you this morning, you don't know when, I don't know when the day is that we're going to meet God. Whether it's through death and meet him or whether it's going to be the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord as it talks about. But there is a way to prepare for it. There is a way that we can prepare for it. And he follows up with this contrast of the believer's and unbeliever's view of the day of the Lord. And just to help you understand, the day of the Lord, what I'm saying here, in case you may not understand what I'm saying, is the return of Christ and the return of Christ and then the judgment that God will pour out on the world to sin and those that don't believe. And you may be here today, and you may say, Phil, I'm visiting. I don't even know what I walked into. You're talking about the coming of the Lord. You're talking about wrath. You're talking about those things. I don't know. What, what did I walk in today? Can I tell you something? It is the responsibility of the church. Church is the local body of believers, not just the guy standing up here preaching. It is the responsibility of the church from Scripture to tell people that there is a day coming that God will punish sin and that God will punish the unbelieving. And we have to be faithful to not just talk about the good things of the Bible that we like, but we have to be faithful to give the full and whole counsel of God, to let people know about that. We have to be faithful in that. So much that even in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, it's a great chapter 33, you ought to read it sometime, and the personal responsibility you have as a believer, especially any position you have, but if you're a dad, a grandma, grandpa, any of that stuff in between, and you have people under you, but even as a believer, Ezekiel 33 is the, is the chapter about the watchman. And the watchman would stand on top of a tower and he would look all around for that city and those people that were there. And whenever he saw destruction coming, he would cry out to the city so they could prepare. And it says if he saw the enemy coming and he cried out to those that did not see the enemy coming, if they prepared, all was well, all was safe. If he cried out to those and those didn't prepare, he says, you know what, it's on them. But he goes pretty far there in Ezekiel 33. He says, but if the watchman sees the enemy coming and sees destruction coming and doesn't say anything, he puts them equally as guilty as those that did not hear it and says their blood will be on your hands. So this morning, I want you to understand, 
The love of God requires the wrath of God. It requires the wrath of God. The love of God is that you don't have to endure the wrath of God. The, 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 the good news is about how we don't have to face an angry God. What is it Jonathan Edwards says? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. We don't have to be that. We can be redeemed. We talked about it in Sunday school today in Galatians chapter 4, verses about 1 through verse number 8. It talks about who God sent his son, made of woman, made under the law, that might redeem us and make us into the adoption of sons, that we might be heirs together with Christ. We don't have to face the wrath of God. So can I tell you this morning, if you're here and you may have religion, but you don't have a relationship with God, can I warn you? very lovingly but very fervently, that if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, you're trusting in works, you're trusting in membership, you're trusting in just being a good person, can I tell you, you are in danger of the day of the Lord. You should fear the day of the Lord then. And as believers, we should be warning. We should be telling. But if you're here and you know that Jesus is your Savior, He has saved you, can I tell you that we can declare the good news of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is good news. And I want you to realize, I don't want you to think here that this is a scare tactic. It's not a scare tactic. But the reality is, there is coming a day of the Lord. And I want to tell you the same thing that the Bible does, to give you a chance to react one of two ways today. If you're here today without Christ, I didn't say you've been a church member. If you're here today without Christ, there's one of two ways that you can react to the Word of God that's going to be proclaimed to you here in just a moment more. You can react one way by God giving you refuge from the wrath of God. That's by salvation. It comes in Christ. Jesus Christ came to this earth, and he bled, and he died, and he died on a cross, and suffered the shame, suffered the agony, and praise God, he rose again the third day. He conquered death in the grave to provide refuge for you from that day of the Lord and that wrath that was to come. And you can take the gift of salvation. And that's one way you can respond to it by saying, I want Christ as my Savior. But can I tell you, another way you can react is you can say, I'm good where I'm at. But I tell you, you're making yourself very subject to the wrath of God. Who can stand before him? Revelation says that they wouldn't even be able to look upon him. They turned their faces away and said to the mountains, fall on us that we, we can't even look at the Son of God. We can't look at him and his, and his holiness and our, and our sinfulness. And what Paul's saying here, look in verse number 3. He says, for when they shall say peace and safety, he's talking about the world, he's talking about the Roman government and their Caesar. He says, whenever they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Paul's saying there are those that are saying, hey, you don't have to worry about the day of the Lord. Remember, they were not a Roman province, but they were aligning themselves with Rome and the teaching and the authority of Caesar and of his uh, adopted son, uh, Augustus. And what we see here is this. They're saying, don't worry about the day, Lord. Don't worry about that. There's peace. There's safety in just serving Caesar. Just going along with the world system. Thessalonica was a major trade route. It was a major military route. A lot of people went back and forth in that to the point where they built a shrine to the deity of Caesar. They said, he is a god. We're going to make him like God. And we're actually going to build another shrine to his adopted son, Augustus. Even a little bit later on, after Caesar died and Augustus becomes in control, he becomes Caesar. He expands the Roman Empire. And if you history nerds like me like this, you have 217 years of what's called the Pax Romana. Pax Romana is where Augustus says you have the peace of 
of Rome. Only Rome can bring peace in your life. Only Rome can do it. I believe my Bible says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And I tell you that they cannot provide the peace that only can come. And we see this propaganda, this idea Augustus said, if you're an opponent of Rome, just lay down your arms, lay down your weapons, pledge loyalty, and Augustus will bring you peace and security. Can I tell you here today, there's nothing in this world that can give you the peace of God or the security in Christ. Only he can give it. Every peace that we try to get from things and idols and things in this world that we chase, it's only temporal and it's not sufficient. It won't last. They had this thought over the Augustus is that the world would just be a better place if we just got under the leadership of Caesar. If we just placed ourselves under the leadership of Caesar. You say, that's crazy. But don't we live in a world today that tells Christians it's better just to shut up and sit down than it is to stand up and proclaim the truth? It's better just to go with the flow than live a life that might possibly offend somebody. I'm finding out the only people that it's okay to offend is believers. That's what I'm starting to find out. Don't do anything. Don't pray in public. Don't read your Bible. Don't do these different things because that might offend somebody. Don't put up a cross for Easter. Don't do these different things because that might offend somebody. But I tell you, they don't really care. The world system don't care about offending you if you make a stand for Christ. Now, by the way, you are to speak the truth. We're speaking love. Don't be that Christian that speaks the truth in an obnoxious way. Don't give Christ a black eye. By the way, we don't handle people in truth and in love and telling them of the love of God. By the way, the only time that you say, well, Brother Phil, Jesus went to the temple and Jesus turned the, temp- turned the tables over and he scourged them out and he hollering at them. Can I tell you this? The only time Jesus got angry in the Bible, he didn't get angry at what they did to him. What does he say to them? You turned my father's house. Remember everything they did to Jesus and beating him and everything? What did it say to the, how did he respond to how they treated him? He opened not his mouth. He goes, as a lamb dumb before his ears, he says, if I'm going to get angry, it's not going to be about what happens to me. It's going to be about what's hindering the glory of the Father. Some of us as believers get so in the flesh and get so angry when things offend us when truly the only righteous anger there really is is when someone offends God and whenever somebody does something with, against him. And they were telling him, just submit to this adopted so-called deity. And this will give you peace and security. And so that's the reason there's persecution. Because these Christians, for them to stand and say, hey, there's another king coming. There's this king called Jesus Christ who came, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he's returning. That was offensive to Caesar. That was offensive to Rome. And for them to say there's going to be one that comes back that's going to rule, that's going to reign, and he's going to bring wrath and destruction upon all those that don't believe, they said that's foolish. The people were telling him, who's going to stand up against Caesar? Ain't nobody can stand up against Caesar. So in verse number 3, we see this part here. He said, this is how their destruction, the world's destruction, is going to come of those who don't trust in Christ and trust into other things. It says that there, says, as travail upon a woman with child, they shall not escape. What he's telling them in this passage is this. He says, you know what's going to happen? The Lord's going to come as a thief in the night. And it's going to be like a woman that's expecting that goes into labor pain and can't avoid it. And it's going to be an instant pain until the birth happens. And he said, Jesus is going to return. And the wrath that he pours out upon the unbelieving is going to be swift. And there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. I asked you this and think of this too. I I saw it on a t-shirt one time and I thought it was really good. Many who plan to seek God at the 11th hour die at 1030. 
There's a lot of people saying, I'll get right with God, I'll serve God in the last hour, but you may not make it to the last hour. You say, Phil, I thought this was supposed to be the love of God. Can I tell you, if I don't tell you this, I'm not fully telling you of the love of God. But it ought to change the way we live. Especially as believers, it changed the way we live. I mean, all through the Old Testament, some of the harshest words that God ever gives is to those people that gave false peace and security to the people of God. Those people that said, don't worry about the judgment of God, don't worry about your sin, just keep going. Jeremiah 6.14, Ezekiel 13.10 are some pretty strong words that he gives to those people that will lie and say peace when there's no peace. And they say security when there's no security. So those who are unbelievers with our relationship with Christ, can I tell you this morning, and I want to say it with love, if you're here without Christ, they can I go to a little bit of church, I can read my Bible a little bit, I can throw a little something in the plate. I don't really need to be a Christian. I don't really need to accept Christ. Can I tell you as much love in my heart? You're living a delusional life. You're living a delusion. I go to it probably every Sunday morning service. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, many will say unto me that day. Many. That doesn't say a few. It doesn't say half. Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not in thy name cast out devils, done many marvelous works? And I will say unto them, depart from me, for I never knew you. I never had that relationship of being Lord of your life and forgiving you of your sins and saving your soul. And so we see this here. And, and, and let me, can I, can I explain it this way? There is no accomplishment that you will ever have in life. There is no plaque you can put on your wall. There's no amount of money in the bank that will provide peace and security for that day of the Lord. Don't get me wrong. I like having money in the bank. I like doing accomplishments. But the only way to have peace and security for the day of the Lord is by having a relationship with the one called Jesus who bled and died and asking him to forgive you of your sins and save your soul. Let him be the covering for your sin. And that's the difference between the unbeliever and the believer. Look in verses 4 and 5. It says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. For ye are children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of night, nor of the darkness. Paul is saying for the believer, there's a different outlook. So everything I just told you didn't sound real great, did it? But that's for the unbeliever. The unbeliever that wants to live their life and not do it that way. And by the way, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord's your Savior, I'm not saying you're angry against God. But what I'm telling you is that you're apart from God. And God desires to have that relationship with you so you don't be without Christ, but you be with Christ. And what he tells them in these verses that we read here is that they are, for Christians, they are to be alert, they are to be sober, they're not to be asleep, they're not to be drunken, but they be under self-control. And that they operate in such a way that they guard their hearts and their minds. Look in verse number 6. It says, Therefore, talking about us as believers, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. What Paul is saying is to be aware of what the Lord is doing and desires to do in your life because you ought to be preparing for the day of the Lord. Be aware of what the Lord is doing and desires to do because the Lord is coming back one day and I want to tell you something. I want to be prepared for that. I want to be prepared for that. Can I tell you something else? I want my wife to be prepared for that. I have a part in that, by the way. I want my kids, Maggie, Noah, Grace, and Chloe, to be prepared for that day of the Lord. Can I tell you something? I want my church family. I want to do my part in helping you prepare for that day of the Lord. Hey, I want people that are visiting with us. To, I want to help you prepare for the day of the Lord. I want the people in my community, people that you may work at your job, people that you see at Walmart, and you know what? If we're being honest... We even want to help our enemies 
prepare for the day of the Lord. If we really understood the horrors of hell, we wouldn't want to understand me to go there. No matter how mad we are when we tell them where to go. We ought to be preparing for the day of the Lord to prepare for that. And let me ask you this morning, is the way you live in your life preparing for that day? The way you live in your life, is it preparing for that day? Or did you just survive the week? You ever have those, you just survive the week, say, Phil, I'm just trying to survive life. I got that. But here's the thing. I'm closer to the day of the Lord today than I was yesterday. I like birthdays. People say, I don't like birthdays. I kind of like them. It means I keep breathing in and out. I kinda, I'm kind of fond of birthdays. But when I had my birthday not long ago, you know what I thought to myself? Thank you, God, for giving me life. Now, what am I going to do this year to help prepare for the day that I meet you? What am I going to do this year to help prepare my wife, my kids, my friends, people I bump into, people that are perfect strangers that God will bring through my path? What am I going to do to help prepare them for the day of the Lord? And I ask you the same question. You just going to have your head down, keep plowing away? Or are we going to help prepare for the day of the Lord? Are we going to help prepare people for that? And I want to help people. And you ought to want to help people. And he says in verse 6 again, verse 6 and 7, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. And you see the contrast of the believer and the unbeliever. Paul says this about the unbeliever. He says they're asleep spiritually. They can't see in the night, and they can't act the way they need to act. He says so much he talks about drunk. He's saying this. They act as if they're intoxicated with something else other than God. They're acting like they're intoxicated with something other than Christ, and they're not able to discern what is happening around them. Can I tell you, there's a lot of believers that are acting like they're drunk spiritually. They're so caught up and intoxicated and just totally get. I'm not talking about physical drink. I mean mental, spiritual. We're so focused on so many other things that consume our lives that we barely got enough time to thank God for the day. And we got to be careful. He says, don't be asleep. Don't be drunk. Don't be so consumed with other things. And in verse number 8, he says, but let us who are of the day, let us as believers be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet of sal- for the helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 8, he says, we are to be guarding our hearts. We are to be guarding our minds by faith and by love and the hope of that salvation that only comes in Christ. Why? Why should I guard my heart, Phil? Why should I guard my mind? You don't know what I'm going through. Yeah, I'm a believer, but why should I be sober like you're talking about? Why should I be guarding my mind and my thoughts and and my life and my heart? Because of verse number 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to the salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. You know why I should please God with your life when you go home this afternoon? Because you're a believer and there's a God that loved you enough that gave himself for you. That even so much, not just to save you, but get this, he wants to live together with you forever. You ever thought about that? It's not enough just to save us, let us die, and that be it. But he says, I love you so much that I want to return, or whether through death, that when you sleep, and it talks about sleep falling into death, he says, you know what, I didn't love you enough just to save you. I loved you enough to save you that one day, whether it's the day of the Lord or whether it's by death, that you'll live with me forever. I am humbled at the idea that God would even desire to be near me. But he wants to live with us forever. And that's why we should be sober. That's why we should take a good look at this coming of the Lord. And the, the idea of the response for the believer should not be 
fear, but it should be joy. It'd be because everything that we've gained in salvation will come to fruition and because of Christ's suffering on the cross and that we get to live forever with him. I don't know if you read that, but read verse 10 again. Who died for us that whether we are awake when he returns or dead when he returns, we shall live together with him. I tell you, whenever it's time for me to meet God, I am so looking forward to some people that have gone on to glory already, getting to see them, people that have faith in Christ. But I, humble is not even the right word at the idea that I'm going to one day, because of who Christ is and what he's done for me and me accepting the gift of salvation, I'm actually going to be able to have my faith become sight and get to see the one that had the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet and the one that left glory and humbled himself and became man and gave himself so I don't have to die in my sin and go to hell, but I can spend eternity with the one in the glory and the honor who gave himself for me and still loves me regardless of how unfaithful I am to him. That ought to change your current reality. That ought to change when you walk out the door and go home. That'll change the way you operate in your job. That'll change the way you treat your kids. That'll change the way you respond to your spouse. That'll change the way, because we're preparing for the awesome day, the joyous day, that we get to stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords and just say thank you for a thousand years and it won't even be enough for everything you've done for me, for my family, and in our lives. And we think about these things. And you come to verse number 11, and Paul says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even also ye do. So verse 11, Paul's saying, because of this, being able to be with Christ forever, this should build you up, this should encourage you. And he says you should also talk about it. You ever talk about being with God forever? I don't mean so, be so consumed with heaven that we forget the God of heaven. Some people are so looking forward to heaven just because of heaven. Heaven is not heaven if Jesus isn't there. I don't care what family members are there or what you think you might get to do or have in heaven. It ain't heaven if Jesus isn't there. And you really don't want to go there if he's not there. We want to be with Christ. That's what we all desire, to be with Christ. And so he says, let this day of the Lord, it is true, even though we don't know when it's going to happen, he said, let it be encouraging. But he's saying this, as we're getting to the last part of this part of this chapter that we've read, he's saying, but the thing that this should do, it should change, it should affect you. Because you are saved, because there's a day of the Lord are coming, because you get to live one day forever with the Lord, it should affect what you do this afternoon. It should affect the way that you are on your job Tuesday, or whatever day you work. And it should have a great deal of effect on your present reality, how you live. And Paul answers that in these three ways. He's saying, you know how the coming of the Lord and what God has done, you know how it should affect us? He says in three different ways. It should affect how we live in our community. It should affect the way you live in your community. It also should affect how we are personally devoted to God. Let me ask you a question. How devoted do you really think you are to God? I didn't ask you how devoted you think I think you are. It don't matter what I think. In the reality of the day of the Lord and living with Him forever, it should affect, it should affect how we are personally devoted to God. It should affect how we live in our community. And the third way it should affect, it should affect how we operate and worship Him. There's a lot of Christians that will sing, It is well with my soul. 
There's no joy there. It ain't well with your soul. Great and mighty is the Lord our God. You don't seem great. See, when I live in the reality that my sin and my suffering and my desires and my pleasures of the flesh are more important, I don't have joy of the Lord. I don't have that effect that it should have of the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. But when I look and think about how great God is, how wonderful God is, that He loves me in spite of me, saved me, sustained me, answers my prayer, which is still awesome to think about, and He wants me to live forever with Him, it should change the way I worship Him. It should change the way you live in your community. It should change the way that your devotion is to him. And so we see that in the rest part of this chapter. And that's why he says in verse number 12 and 13, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among you. Can I tell you when I read this, I wanted to skip it. You know why? He's encouraging this church. He's encouraging this church to be an encouragement and to be faithful to God and to encourage their pastors and leaders. I really want to skip over this because I don't want this to seem self-serving. I don't want this to seem self-serving. So I want to look at it this way. I want to tell you as a pastor of Emmanuel, I want to tell you thank you. You guys are wonderful to me. You're wonderful to my wife. You're wonderful to my kids. You guys fulfill verses 12 through 13. He's telling this church at Thessalonica, your leaders, those that labor among you, he says you ought to encourage them, be along with them, uplift them. And I want to tell you that I've been in this role of pastor for about six years, August to be six years. And can I tell you, I have felt so deeply loved, I felt so deeply respected and encouraged in the work here. And thank you for that. I want to tell you thank you. The other day was my birthday, and you guys gave me a gift. And it wasn't like a smack upside the head. I thought that was pretty cool. You guys gave me a gift, and that was wonderful. Thank you for your part in that. Thank you. I, I, I feel loved. I feel encouraged. Because I have friends that, I'll be honest with you, that are in ministry. That after a Sunday or after a weekend, they go home. And they're not just fighting against the devil. They're fighting against people in their church. I don't feel that here. And I thank God for that. And may we protect that, by the way. Not take that for granted. But i got friends that want to quit sometimes. And I want to thank you for encouraging me, but not just encouraging me, but walking alongside of Rachel and myself and the other people that are in leadership here, walking alongside of us. And I want to thank you also because there's times in my life that I'm difficult. And I appreciate you letting me be transparent with you and forgiving me when I fail you and showing grace and showing love to me. I thank you for doing verses 12 and 13, what he encourages them, how it should affect them. And I want to thank you for that. It's a refreshing to be seen and shown the grace of God. And know what Paul's telling them in verses 12 and 13? Keep it up. If I can say that without being self-serving, keep it up. Thank you. Keep it up. And so we go on to the next part here. That was a fun part. So we go to verse number 14 and 15. So he moves up to that encouragement to a command. Verse 14 and 15, he says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient towards all men. So Paul moves from that encouragement to a command to them, and he says, what does he say in the verse? Warn them that are unruly. You know what those that are unruly is? It's those that know right, and they're leaving. They're leaving. You know what he's telling the people? He's not telling the pastor. He's telling the pastor and the people. He says, those that know the truth and are leaving, warn them. Don't just say, we'll see you. You ain't going to be like I see you. He says, warn them. He goes on to say, not just warn those people, but he says, comfort the feeble-minded. The feeble-minded are those that are easily swayed back and forth. It, the 
Comfort the feeble-minded of those people, and you may be one of these people today that says, if one more thing happens in my life, I'm done. I tell you, I've been feeble-minded a lot in my life. <laughs> if you're here today and you think to yourself, there's so much going on, say, if one more thing's happened, I'm quitting this whole thing. He says, you know what you got to do? You got to comfort them. He goes on to say, support the weak. Those that are tired, those that are struggling, those that are beat down, those that life is just pouring on them. It means reach out to them and love them and help them, whether it's physically, spiritually. He says, you know what you got to do? Support them. And that would have been really great if he stops there. But you see the next part? And be patient toward the people you like. No. Doesn't the word all sometimes make you crazy? Be patient toward all men. That means don't just be patient to your family. Don't just be patient to your friends. Be patient to those that despitefully use you. Be patient to your enemies. Because you know what the Bible was on to say in another passage? That in doing so and being Christ-like to them, you heap coals of fire upon your head. You say, Brother Phil, that's my job. That's the spiritual gift I want. Can I be the coal of fire person? That's what I really want. It's not saying you'll do it. That God will do it through the Holy Spirit. He'll convict them and do those things. But be patient toward all men. Let me ask you this week, were you patient to all men? This week, were you patient toward men? You say, well, my fuse is pretty short this week. I'm so glad that he's faithful where I'm not. Where my strength stops, that's where he kicks in. By the way, he should kick in the whole time. But we see there's a group of people here, and he's telling them, he said, there's going to be people that are unruly, people that are, that are just fed up. There's people that are struggling, and there's going to be people that drive you crazy. And he says, be patient to be patient to them. And he goes on to say in verse 15, he says, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. What he's saying is don't render or don't pay back evil. I would, I'm not going to ask you to answer this. Anybody done your own this week? Anybody done your own this past month? He said don't pay it back. Don't render it back to them. But what does it say in the verse? In the middle of verse 15, but ever follow that which is good. Okay, man, I wish that wasn't in the Bible sometimes, right? He says, follow that which is good. He doesn't say, follow that which makes you just or gives you justice. He says, but follow that which is good that's pleasing to God. And by the way, what does it say again? And to all men, not just to each other, but to everyone else. And these, this affects how we live every day in our communities and our devotion to the Lord. And he says in these verses here, verses 16 through 18, if I have this attitude of patience and love and holiness, he says, you know what, verse 16, you can rejoice evermore. You can pray without ceasing. You can in everything give thanks. You can do those things whenever we have this heart and attitude of not trying to justify ourselves. He says rejoicing. You say, Phil, how in the world is he telling this church that these people, they're being persecuted? How can he tell them they're losing their lives? He's telling them, he's saying, Paul is saying, don't let your circumstances pull you away from the joy that only comes in salvation in Christ. What was it Job said? Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Because of that relationship. You may be here today and you say, I can't rejoice. You can rejoice if you know the Lord is your Savior. You still have a great hope. And this world is the worst it'll ever get for you as a believer. That heaven is sweeter and heaven's more. He says you can rejoice. Don't pull away from that. Because there's coming a day that your faith will become sight. He says pray without ceasing. He says always have an attitude and spirit of prayer. You ever been so fouled up I have before? I say, you know, I just can't pray right now. I just can't pray right now. That's not where we should be. 
but being such in tune with God when things happen that we can't always have an attitude of prayer. And he says in every situation, verse number 18, he says we are to be thankful. We are to be thankful. How to do that? You say, do you really have to be thankful? Well, he goes on to say it's the will of God. Because every opportunity that comes in my life, God is using that opportunity, if I'll be thankful for it, to make me more mature and to be made more like Christ. We want to be made more like Christ, but we don't want the maturing process. We want to be made more like Christ, but we don't want to go through the suffering. He goes on to say, and if you do these things, guess what you won't do? Verse 19, you won't quench the Spirit. You want more details on quench not the Spirit? Read Ephesians 4, 22 through 32. He talks about grieving the Holy Spirit there in Ephesians 4, 22 through 32. He says, don't despise prophecies or teachings about God. He said, but prove all things, verse 21. Hold fast, that was good. And I would encourage you, prove all things. Don't let, don't let this be the only time the Bible's open and you're taught. Pick this thing up and read it for yourself. Prove all things. He even goes on to say in verse 22, abstain from the appearance of evil. What he's saying is this, there's going to be presented to you good things that are meant to do you harm. Anyone ever presented a thing, something to you that looked good at the beginning? But at the end of it, you're like, man, I wish I never went down that path. He's saying abstain from the appearance of evil. If it's too good to be true, it's probably, it probably isn't true. People will use good things to try to get you to stumble, to try to get you to gossip, to try to get you to sow discord, to try to get you to do these different things in your life. Don't be naive. Don't be paranoid. And in closing, verse 23, he says this in 24, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely. He says, now pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is this. This is where they answer the question, how does God prove his faithfulness? He says, what you're walking through, your struggle, your difficulty, is making you more like Christ. Why? Why does God let me struggle? Because what it says in verse number 23 that we can be what more mature, but that we can be presented blameless and pure before him at the day of the Lord. Your struggle today is so God will help you be more like Christ, so when you stand before Christ, you'll be blameless and pure, not ashamed and hiding away. And I like verse 24 in the context. Faithful is he that calleth you, who will also do it. He says this, when I'm no longer patient, he is faithful. When I don't want to pray, faithful is he that calleth you. When I can't rejoice because of my situation, faithful is he that calleth you. And whenever you're going through something in life and it just fights against everything that you know that God wants you to do, he says you can cling to the promise that faithful is he that calleth you who will also perform it. He's a faithful God. Don't let your circumstances dictate the way you live. Instead, let the joy of the day of the Lord affect how you live in your community, let it affect your devotion to God, and let it affect your worship of God. Let's stand together. Father, thank you so much for the day and the time we could be together.